Welcome to the Indianola First Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. Our prayer is that this message will inspire you, encourage you, and launch you into life-changing action. This morning we begin a new series covering one of the most, or one of the greatest teachings really, uh, of uh, the greatest teacher who ever lived. Jesus Christ is not only our master, he was a master communicator throughout his life here on earth. So profound and timeless were his teachings that they are woven into every fabric of our cultural philosophies from governance and laws to our basic idea of moral behavior. And whether the secular world wants to admit it or not, no one person has even come close to the level of influence that Jesus' teachings have had on humanity. His effect has been incalculable. So over the next 12 weeks, we're going to dive together as a congregation into one of the most beloved sermons ever preached. His Sermon on the Mount is found in Matthew chapter 5 through 7. And even though you can read these three chapters in a matter of several minutes, I'm telling you, getting to the depths of truth that they contain is impossible, even if you spend an entire lifetime doing it. That's the profoundness of his word and of his truth. And at the end of these three chapters, it says this, Matthew 7, 28 through 29. We'll start with the end, right? It says, and when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. And let me give you a bit of what was happening at the time that Jesus gave these teachings. He had just called his disciples. He was ministering and teaching throughout Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and and, and healing every single disease and every affliction among the people. Jesus was becoming famous at this time. His ministry was just getting launched. People were bringing in the sick and those who were afflicted and demon-possessed, and he was praying for them, and they were getting healed and delivered. Crowds were beginning to follow him. Everyone was talking about this man, and then we come to chapter 5, and it's really the first recorded public words of Jesus in, in his ministry. And in Matthew chapter 5, verse 1 and 2, it says, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, to, mountain and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them saying, so before we talk about what he was saying, what he said, he got up on the hillside, presumably because he wanted to be heard. His closest followers, his disciples, they gathered near him and the crowd settled in to hear him. Then Jesus opened his mouth and he began to declare his words, with his words. He declared the kingdom of God. He taught them and Jesus started with the nine sayings that have become known as the Beatitudes. Beatitude is a word with Latin roots and it simply means blessed or supreme happiness, a state of utmost bliss. These nine promises of blessing to those that display the coinciding character or attitudes for every promise of blessing, you know, there are conditions or required attitudes that lead and posture ourselves to to see these promises fulfilled in our lives. In other words, for every promise that you see in the word of God, there's conditions attached to it. And some of us don't like that, but that's just the way the word of God is. And to shake down these nine blessings, these nine promises, I wanna shake them down to where we live this morning. 
It's the first section of the Sermon on the Mount. And I want us to think of these Beatitudes in reference to the attitudes that we should be displaying in our lives. It's not spelled the same way, it's not even based off the same word, but these are B-attitudes. Attitudes that we should be, you understand what I'm saying. And I want us to think about them that way, or at least the attitudes that we should be having, because those are the very conditions that we need to meet to live under those blessings. So he starts off with Matthew 5, chapter 3, or I'm sorry, chapter 5, verse 3, and he says this, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I've heard this verse ever since I was a little kid. I've had all sorts of uh, different uh, spiritual leaders, different pastors, different priests tell me what this meant, but I never really understood it. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What is the promise here? It's the kingdom of heaven, right? What's the required attitude that leads to the fulfillment of that promise? It's that we are poor in spirit. It's that simple. But Jesus did not say, blessed are the poor, as I was taught at one time in my life. He did not say, blessed are the poor in spirit, as in the Holy Spirit, with a capital S. He said, blessed are those who are poor within their own spirit, who are poor in spirit. What does that mean? It's the attitude of humility, church. It's absolute reliance on God and not on self. It's the absence of arrogance. It's the opposite of pride. And the crazy thing about pride is that when you are bound by it, you don't realize it because you're too prideful to see it. It's a catch-22. For instance, when we refuse to live our lives without prayer, We are literally walking in self-reliance. Turn to your neighbor and say, are you walking in self-reliance? And I really understand, I really appreciated what Pastor Jared said just prior to me coming up here, because he didn't know the angle. We're so busy sometimes, we don't really even get to talk about the angle I'm gonna take on these things. But he talked about condemnation. Let me tell you something. These beatitudes, they're not condemning, but they certainly are convicting. And I don't want to condemn anyone in here this morning. I don't want you to walk out of here feeling condemned, but there's no way you can read these beatitudes and not look at yourself and go, holy smokes, I missed the mark. I don't want you to feel condemned. But let the Holy Spirit convict if he needs to. And there's a difference. When we refuse to live our lives without prayer, we are walking in self-reliance. If you have a non-existent prayer life, if your prayer life is lame, if it stinks, if it's very minuscule, again, I'm not trying to condemn you, but that's an attitude of self-reliance. Being poor in spirit is the opposite of that. Prayerlessness is the ultimate act of pride for the Christian. And I'm not talking about quick little meal prayers or 911 prayers when we get into a jam. I'm talking about cultivating a life of constant, consistent prayer. I'm not even talking about a one-hour prayer time at the beginning of every morning, even though it's great for some people. I'm talking about a life of prayer. Like Paul said, pray without ceasing. Well, how do you do that? You just have this attitude of prayer. You're praying all the time. 
I'm, I'm getting a little off track here, but I want you to see there's so many areas in our life that we become self-reliant, we don't even realize it. If we're not praying, for instance, we're self-reliant, right? We're not depending on the Holy Spirit. We're not depending on God. This is the fruit, constant prayer life. That's the fruit that's produced in someone who is reliant on Jesus. Fruit doesn't lie, church. It always tells the truth. And I, I know that uh, most statistics are made up on the spot, but I have heard this several times, that the average Christian in America prays seven seconds a day. What? Man, we're a self-reliant people, aren't we? Are you quiet because you're mad at me or because you're going, oh, me? <laughs> Being poor in spirit does not mean that you mope around with your head down either. It means you are confident in Christ. You understand who you are in him, and that is all, that it's all him and not you. And if we think we have some sort of wisdom in business or in politics or subjects like math or science, and we don't spend time in God's word. Another example, your wisdom is sourced in your abilities. True wisdom comes from him, church. And you can't gain it no matter how genius pro you are, prone you are unless you first submit to the truth of his word and read it. See, we're supposed to be in his word. And when we're not, it says we're self-reliant again. We're, we're reliant on our own abilities. Just like prayer. Someone who is poor in spirit has no problem being desperate for the word of God. They can't get enough of it. Look at the same verse in the Amplified Bible, Matthew 5, 3. It says, blessed, spiritually prosperous, happy, to be admired, are the poor in spirit, those devoid of spiritual arrogance, those who regard themselves as insignificant, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, both now and forever. Do we have that attitude of being poor in spirit? If we do, then how blessed we are, for the kingdom of heaven is ours. And I think that means on this earth while we're here, there's a measure of the kingdom of heaven that is ours here, but it certainly also points to the day that when we graduate into, into eternity, we will have the kingdom of heaven without measure then. His kingdom is here and it's yet coming. We get to experience it. We have a measure of it here in the, in, in the here and now. When we're poor in spirit, it's ours, but then one day it's gonna be full measure ours. And I just have to say this, and probably nobody in here was taught that blessed are the poor, but I was. And so just by chance, there might be somebody here that needs to hear this. You can have material wealth and still be poor in spirit. You can have material wealth and be prideful. You can be poor financially and be completely reliant on self, and you, have, and you can have nothing and be completely dependent on God. Your financial station does not determine your level of pride or your level of being poor in spirit. And like me, you've probably met all kinds of people, and I know millionaires who are as humble as can be, and I've met poor people who only think and talk about money constantly. Poor in spirit, not your pride, not, not reliant on self, not arrogant, but reliant on God and having the fruit to back that up, that that's reality in your life. 
Matthew 5, 4, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. What is the promise here? It's comfort. How many could use some comfort now and then? Just two of you? You're too comfortable, you need to be more uncomfortable? We could get wood benches in here like they did in the old days and sit on wood benches, would that help? Be real uncomfortable? No, that's not what we're talking about. The promise is comfort. What's the required attitude that leads to the fulfillment of that promise? It's more than just being sad. It's not just to mourn. I mean, if we believe that everyone who mourns about situations and circumstances that they go through will be comforted by God, I think it would water down the meaning here to the place where people could claim the Bible isn't even true. Blessed are those who are sad, for they shall be comforted. That sounds nice, doesn't it, when we think about it in those terms? And some people, that's what they believe, that that's all it means. But we know there's sad people who never get over it, so what about them? I know plenty of people, even Christian people, who never seem to find comfort for their personal mourning and sorrow. What was Jesus saying here? I believe that it refers to grieving or mourning over the things that grieve God. It reminds me of the prophet Jeremiah who is often referred to as the weeping prophet. He lamented over the condition of God's people. Jesus also wept over the city of Jerusalem and the spiritual condition that it was in. Those who mourn must mean more than, than it's, it's gotta be more than just those who are sad. And as I read the word of God and spend time in his presence, I've become more and more convinced that the cry of our heart must be, Lord, break my heart with the things that break yours. That's that mourning that, that, that we're talking about here. Blessed are those that mourn, that agonize over the things that God agonizes over. See, there's an agony, a mournful agony that occurs within our emotions when our spirits line up with his spirit and we start to feel and pray the heart of God. This type of emotion doesn't just happen whenever God chooses to burden you with it. Like, I'm waiting, God, burden me, here you go. I'm, I'm available anytime. All right, thanks, I did my part. It happens more and more as we nurture our relationship with Christ. You take on his nature. Simply put, you become like the people you hang around. Have you been hanging around Jesus lately? Time in prayer, time in his word, time in his presence, neo time or time in fellowship with the kind of Christians you can sharpen your swords with. That's all time spent, you know, taking on his nature. The promise is comfort. And it's made to those who have spent so much time with their Savior that they have adopted even his emotional state over the people of this world. They've taken on his heart and it isn't just in reference to others and, and to the corruption of this world around them. The kind of, of, of people that Jesus is talking about here are those that grieve even over their own sin. We sang that song, and Isaiah is a perfect example. When he got in God's presence, he, he, he cried out, I'm ruined. I'm ruined because I'm a man of unclean lips. Isaiah the prophet. They recognize their own weakness in relation to God's perfect standard. They get close enough to Christ to see how far away from them they truly are. I mean, does anybody know what I'm talking about this morning? The closer you get to God, the more you realize how far away you are. It's, it's like paradoxical. 
It's, it's strange to me. And you're like, well, maybe, and maybe that is why some Christians don't want to pray and get in his presence, because they don't want to face the truth that they're far away from him. Man, I want to know the heart of God. I want to know, I mean, what he's feeling over any situation because of my relationship with him so that I can grieve with him in prayer. I can mourn with him in prayer. And the promise is we will be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. I think this is exactly why Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher of the 1800s, referred to tears as liquid prayer. I'm weeping over the things that God weeps over. Matthew 5, 4, blessed, this is the amplified version, blessed, forgiven, refreshed by God's grace are those who mourn over their sins and repent for they will be comforted when the burden of sin is lifted. I love that. God absolutely cares about how you feel. I want you to understand that. Your feelings are important to him. In this statement, I have no doubt But there is something powerful that takes place in our lives when we begin to care and seek out how God feels about situations and circumstances that we are facing. You know, just some food for thought. We spend so much time um, with the kumbaya attitude. And and I'm I'm not trying to be mean or nasty or or say something against a nice kid song like kumbaya, campfire song, you know, but come by me, my Lord. I've got a problem over here, come by me. That's what kumbaya means, come by me. Come by me, my Lord, I need you here. You know, come by me, my, however the song goes. Come by me, I'm adding a lot of words. (laughs) (laughs) Come by me, my Lord. We're, We're always saying that in our attitude, aren't we? Come by me, God, come and fix me. Come take care of this, come take care of this. God, I'm in a situation, get me out of it. God, help me, help me, help me, help me, help me, help me, help me. I think sometimes God says, who's gonna help me? I mean, that's what he said to Isaiah, right? Who will go for us? Who will we send? And he said, here am I, send me. See, there comes a moment in your relationship with God that it's not all about me. It's all about him and his causes. It's not that he doesn't care about your feelings, because he certainly does. And don't feel condemnation if you need healing for your emotional well-being. God God wants to do that. He's a God of love. But I'm just talking about a place where you're healed, where a coal was touched to your lips and you were cleansed, and now you're his, and he can use you. And you can line up your spirit with his. You can grieve like he over what he grieves over. Next one, Matthew 5, 5. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. What is the promise here? The inheritance of the earth. What's the required attitude that leads to the fulfillment of that promise? It's meekness. So let's start with the obvious question. What is meekness? How should we define that word? Because generally speaking, in today's world, it has the connotations of being timid, or maybe even shy, soft-spoken, not pushy, that's meek, just being really overly gentle in all situations, which is somewhat 
the opposite of what we think of when we think of a leader. And we are all called to be leaders, so what gives? I want to tell you what the famous Greek philosopher Aristotle, how he defined this word, meekness. He said, it's the character of one having the passion of resentment under control. That is so good. The character of one having the passion of resentment under control and therefore is tranquil and untroubled. Hmm. Dictionaries define it this way. Humbly patient under provocation from others. Compliant, gentle, kind. Enduring injury with patience and without resentment. And these really do line up with the original Greek word here. Pros which means gentleness or the opposite of self-assertiveness. Meekness stems from absolute trust in God's goodness and control over situations. You see, when you're relationally close to God all the time and you, and you, you, you just cultivate that and you foster that and you live for that and you work at that and you pour into that relationship that you have with Christ, you, you, you begin to take on his nature and you begin to trust him as well. And when you trust him and that he's in control, you know, you don't feel like you have to be the one that does his bidding for him. He just takes care of things. Meekness. It's similar to being poor in spirit, but it has this idea of bringing a sense of calm to your soul. Not being easily provoked or irritated. Baker's Dictionary says that meekness describes strong people who are placed in positions of weakness who keep going without sinking into bitterness or a desire for vengeance. Wow. Maybe you are in one of those positions of weakness. You're tempted to be unforgiving towards someone. You're in a situation where it would be easy to become bitter. Your buttons are being completely pushed, but that character of meekness says, turn the other cheek. Don't retaliate. Don't seek revenge verbally or physically. Well, that's not being a man then, isn't it? Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Meekness also carries with it the idea of the longer or larger view that Jesus wants us to possess. It's birthed out of a trust that God will work it all out and we don't have to worry about it. Fear causes us to react. Meekness is indicative of faith, which will always respond and not just react, it responds. Meekness is not being a sidelined, mealy-mouthed person who can't stand up for themselves. It's a self-controlled person who refuses to be moved by situations or individuals. The meek are moved by the Spirit of God, not by man. And inheriting the earth is an interesting phrase here. It's what's promised to those that are meek. And I believe it's a twofold promise. It not only refers to winning in this life. I mean, you've probably heard the phrase, take the high road, right? How many of you ever heard that? Take the high road. And it's true, when you take the high road, although it's difficult, you'll always arrive at a better destination than if you were to take the low road and compromise those values. But inheriting the earth also points to the new earth that will be created by God after the rapture and the millennial reign of Christ and the great white throne judgment. Revelations 21, one through four, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth passed away and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God 
prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is among the people and he will dwell among them and they shall be his people and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. Hallelujah. There's a day coming when God will create a new heaven and an earth and those who are meek will inherit it. That will be our dwelling. That will be our place to live forever. Well, I don't, I don't want to look like a wuss. I got to stand up for myself. The meek inherit the earth. The people Jesus was talking to, this was profound stuff to them. This was like, What? There's paradoxical ideas in, the, in, the, in these beatitudes. And Lord Jesus, help us walk in meekness. Help us to respond in love and not in hate, hateful revenge as we encounter the situations and circumstances of this life. And let me tell you, you're gonna go through it sometime or, or someplace. You're gonna feel that pressure. But let us respond in love. Matthew 5, 6 so the next one says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. What is the promise here? It's satisfaction. Oh, if only Mick Jagger was here to hear this. We could enlighten him on how to get what he obviously had a hard time getting. I can't get no, right, satisfaction. Poor guy doesn't, doesn't get it. So what's the required attitude that leads to the fulfillment of that promise? It's that we hunger and thirst for righteousness. The promise is satisfaction. The condition is that we hunger and thirst for righteousness. And let me just say it as plain as I can. The litmus test for your spiritual condition is how much you hunger and thirst for righteousness. The Fire Bible study notes say that the foundational requirement for all godly living is to hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now, yesterday I had the uh, privilege of attending and singing at Roberta Marcus's Celebration of Life service, and we came back to the church here afterwards, and we ate, and, and I, I want you to know I've been on some kind of journey, or somewhat of a journey lately, in terms of trying to watch what I eat, and be more intentional about eating those things that are good and healthy and staying more away from those things that aren't. And, and then when I got back to the church here after the service, I found out the Rib Shack, the one from Knoxville, it catered the lunch for Roberta's service. And Pastor Jared talked about Knoxville and he said, you know, the church was doing so good after four years that we released them to be their own church. Really what happened, if you want to know the nitty gritty, I had to stop going to Knoxville because the rib shack was there and it was really messing me up. So just, just want to say that. The rib shack was here though, within our four walls. Oh, daddy. I haven't eaten like that in quite a while. I was hungry because it was noon and I'd skip breakfast. 
But there was a thirst for good, delicious food within me that was the result of saying no so many times in the recent past. Let me confess, I left satisfied. (laughs) And it was good. To hunger and thirst after righteousness is to hunger and thirst after him because he has become righteousness for us. He is righteousness himself. There is nothing on this earth that can satisfy like Jesus and the righteousness that he pours out into us as we hunger and thirst for him. We are designed to want him. There's a gaping hole right through the middle of us that can only be filled with him. That's why people walk around empty. It's like they're dead from the neck up sometimes when you see them. They have no hope. There's something missing in their life and they know it, but they don't know what it is. We found what it was, not because we're better, but because we somehow, some way, we stumbled upon it. Somehow, some way, someone reached out to us and told us and we took advantage of what was being presented to us. And we asked him into our heart and he became our savior and Lord. We started a relationship with him and it filled that hole within our soul. Like nothing could ever fill it. The world tries all sorts of things. Nothing fills it. Nothing fills it. Jesus fills it. When we hunger and thirst for him, the satisfaction of that hole within us being filled, it's it's absolutely unbelievable. And I'm sorry to um, those of you that are trying to eat healthy. I got these uh, Snickers bars here. Um, This one says Snickers. Who wants a Snickers? Right there. Watch out, those could hurt. Um, (laughs) These don't even say Snickers because they say satisfies. (laughs) I mean, come on. Snickers really satisfy? Sorry, Peggy. (laughs) Who Who else wants one? How about up in the balcony? Can I get that far? Yeah, hit, I hit Jory right in the head. Guess what? Snickers don't really satisfy. Jesus satisfies. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they are satisfied. I mean, you can try a Snickers bar if you want, but it ain't gonna get her done. I got to move on. Matthew 5, 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. I mean, come on, what church throws Snickers bars out on Sunday morning? Are we not the best thing ever right here at First Assembly? Yeah. For those of you at home, if you'll travel here, you will get a free Snickers bar. Maybe. Matthew 5, 7, blessed are the merciful for they will receive mercy. What is the promise here? It's that you will receive mercy from others and from God. What's the required attitude that leads to the fulfillment of that promise? It's that we are to be merciful to others. This one's pretty simple, isn't it? It's a simple reap and sow situation. You will harvest mercy when you plant it. Mercy is what you receive when you give it. And this mercy doesn't come from a place of insecurity. I want you to hear me and listen to me very carefully here because I want you to understand this. And I'm unlike Jesus, I'm not the world's best communicator. So sometimes what I'm trying to get across, I don't always say in a way that gets it across. But this mercy does not come from a place of insecurity. Why do I say that? 
It's not a mercy so that people will think I'm better than I really am. Sometimes we show mercy for glory. It's not mercy so that you can prop yourself up as spiritual because you showed mercy. True mercy is sincerely wanting to help and eliminate the suffering of others because of their sin or their situational sorrow. Have you ever heard the phrase that some people just need to be needed? And what happens in some of those scenarios, and please listen carefully, we extend those acts, those words, those gifts, those whatever it is, we extend mercy to people, and it's really not for them, it's for us. Being merciful and being nice are two different things. Mercy is loving and caring and listening and holding and being there for someone. There's no doubt about that. But mercy is also a swift kick in the rear end when someone needs it. Because you love them. Understand what I'm saying? You're laughing, yeah. Sometimes that's what we need. And again, we don't want to be involved in merciful acts just to lift ourselves up or put ourselves in some kind of pedestal because we're so merciful. True mercy comes from a heart that wants to take people to the cross. It points hurting individuals to the truth that will influence people to depend on God and entrust their hearts and lives to Christ Jesus. You know, I, I started to learn more about mercy when I became the lead pastor here at Indianola First. People would come in, and we we're in a location, we're right on the highway, and we get a lot of people that stop by and need help with gas and food, and they need their electric bill paid, and they need their telephone bill paid, and they need all these different things. We get, we get that a lot, okay? People that I don't know, people that just drive by, and oh, there's a church, they're a big building, I bet you they have money, they could pay my phone bill or electric bill. And I've said, I've listened to their situation because that's what you do, every situation's different. It's, it's, how many think I should give all that money all the time? Well, you're not very merciful then. What a merciless congregation. I felt that from the people I'm talking to because I'll just have to say, you know, we, we, uh, we want to help you. We'll, we'll help you a little bit. Or if it's gas money, we have a system in this town where we send them to the police station and they're able to uh, run them on a, on a check to make sure they're not on the run from the law. I mean, nothing like a church giving somebody gas money to get across state lines when they're on the run from the law, right? <laughs> you don't think that happens? Oh, boy. It does happen. And we want to be merciful. Well, you could be entertaining angels. You don't know. You got to be merciful all the time. You got to give everything anybody asks. I'm sorry, that's not how it works. Because the same people I say, we'll give you $25 gas, just go down to the gas station or go down to the uh, police station and get, get checked. You know, they'll, they'll run your name, but then they'll give you a voucher for $25 in gas. And they're like, what kind of church are you? You're supposed to be merciful. You're supposed to love all people. You aren't truly God's people. 
This isn't a God church. This isn't a Jesus church. I've heard all those things. The mercy you need, boy, is a swift kick in the rear end in those situations. And not every situation is like that. This is so hard because how do you know when to and when not to? Prayer. Again, a life of prayer. You won't know unless you pray. You have to be led of the Spirit all the time. And I'm not saying I'm perfect in that either, but, but boy, that's, that's what you got to do. The brand of mercy that Jesus is talking about here always points back to him as the source. It never props the person up who is giving the mercy as the source. Matthew 5 eight: blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. What's the promise here? The privilege of seeing God. What's the required attitude that leads to the fulfillment of that promise? Purity within our hearts. Being someone who has a pure heart is someone who has submitted and devoted themselves to Christ. They've experienced the joy of being freed from sin's power and control. And it's only because of God's grace. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. Okay? Does that make sense? Grace is getting what you don't deserve. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. They're similar but different. And it's only because of God's grace that any of us can ever experience this freedom. Being free from sin's power and control. The pureness of your heart can be measured by the thoughts you have, the words you speak under your breath. Especially when you're angry. The words you clearly speak (laughs) when you're angry. The fantasies of sin that you allow to be played out in your mind. The manipulative planning and scheming that we engage in to get what we want in certain situations. How many have ever gotten into moving the chess pieces around so you could create the outcome that you so desire and it had nothing to do with God? Pure in heart people don't do that. And church, I hope you feel like I do. Who can possibly be pure of heart? I mean, let's go ahead and roll the video that I supernaturally got from the Lord of all of your thoughts of the last week that you had, and we'll put them right up here. Let's go ahead and roll that footage for Larry Perry, okay? (laughs) Would any of us want to have that footage played? Would any of us want all of our, even though, I mean, social media, we put a lot of our thoughts out there anyway, don't we? But would anybody want what's totally in our hearts to be played? The first thing that we say, the first thing that we think, would we want that up for all to see? Pure of heart people. I mean, I I got thinking about this, and I'm like, there's nobody who's pure in heart. It's like impossible. In fact, Romans 3, 9 through 18 is where the Lord led me, and I'm going to read it in the message version. It says, so where does that put us? Do we Jews get a better break than the others? Not really. Basically, all of us, whether insiders or outsiders, that's Jew or Gentile, start out in an 
identical, we start out in identical conditions, which is to say that we are all, we all start out as sinners. Scripture leaves no doubt about it. There is nobody living right, not even one. Nobody who knows the score, nobody alert for God. They've all taken the wrong turn. They've all wandered down blind alleys. No one's living right. I can't find a single one. Their throats are gaping graves. Their tongues slick as mudslides. Every word they speak is tinged with poison. They open their mouths and pollute the air. They race for the honor of sinner of the year. Litter the land with heartbreak and ruin. Don't know the first thing about living with others. They never give God the time of day. (laughs) Whoa. Who can be pure of heart? Anyone who receives the Lord Jesus and becomes born again can be pure of heart. Being pure of heart is impossible, but God. That is to say, the person who submits to Christ and allows him to change them from the inside out, they become born again. Turn to your neighbor and say, born again. Okay? Awesome. Born again, changed from the inside out. Jesus becomes their righteousness for them. These are the people that God will, or that will see God. Pure of heart. There's no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus because his righteousness has become our righteousness. And even though we fail in these areas, God looks at us through rose-colored lenses because he's dipped them in the blood of Jesus and he sees us through the blood of Jesus and he sees purity when he sees you, no matter what you've done. And something happens when you understand that. Lord, you'd do that for me? I don't want to sin anymore. I don't want to do the things I used to do. I I, I don't want to live underneath your standard. And and, you know, we all know it's impossible to live perfect. So then we, we go through our life living for Christ. And when we mess up, guess what? We get to confess that sins and he's faithful and just to forgive it. And he sees you as pure. And you don't even lose your salvation over every little sin. You lose it when you decide that you're going to live in your sin. And stay there and not try. The pure in heart will see him here in this life and they will see him face to face as Moses did in the Old Testament. They will see him move and do miraculous works in and through them while they minister here on the earth. And then the pure of heart will see Him in his infinite glory, his perfection, his majesty, his power. We will be enveloped in his love, tangible love. We will see God, pure of heart. Matthew 5, 9, blessed are the peacemakers. That Greek word there is arena poyaz. I love saying that. That's why I did that. Arena Poyaz. Say that. It's really fun. Arena Poyaz. It's fun. It's a fun thing to say. Francisco. (laughs) Arena Poyaz. Some of you get the reference. Some of you don't. That's fine. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. They will be called children of God. What is the promise here? The privilege of being called children of God. What is the required attitude that leads to the fulfillment of that promise? 
to be a peacemaker, one who loves and makes peace. And this beatitude doesn't tell us how to become a child of God, by the way. It's just saying that children of God will be peacemakers. There's a country song that was popular a, a while back. It was by Rodney Atkins. Any Rodney Atkins fans in here? Okay. Any Jesus fans in here? Uh, that's, that's my church right there. I like that. And the words were this, driving through town, just, just my boy and me with a happy mail, meal in his booster seat, knowing that he couldn't have the toy till his nuggets were gone. It's country, so I can speak with a southern accent. <laughs> Green traffic light turned straight to red. I hit my brakes and mumbled under my breath. His fries went a-flying, and his orange drink covered his lap. Well, then my four-year-old said a four-letter word that started with S, and I was concerned. So I said, son, now where did you learn to talk like that? And he said, I've been watching you, Dad, ain't that cool? I'm your buckaroo, I want to be like you. This peacemaker thing is like being a chip off the old block. We are peacemakers whenever we go, wherever we go, because we've been spending time with Dad. He's the ultimate peacemaker. And we reflect that because we've taken on his nature as we spend time with him. He has made it possible for us to find peace in him. So we, in turn, lead others to that same glorious peace. We can't help it. It's part of us now, and the apple hasn't fallen far from the tree, right? It's our very nature to lead others to the Prince of Peace, the one who can provide the peace that surpasses all human understanding. Peace. Who have you led to peace lately? Who have you led to Christ lately? You see, every single person in this room should be a minister of the gospel, a peacemaker. Because when you share the gospel with, of peace with people, guess what happens? They find Jesus. And they receive peace within themselves. How many have gotten peace within your own soul since you've accepted Jesus Christ, that he's been the difference. He's given you the peace. I mean, raise them hand, raise them proud. Ain't no, I think I am, no, yes or no? Yes or no, turn or burn, you know, one of those things. <laughs> Sorry. Black or white, right? We all have, we feel that peace, we know it's there, we know it's true. And because we're a chip off the old block, we've hung around our Daddy, we've been watching him give peace to us, give peace to others, so we in turn give it to others. We become the conduit that God flows through to bring peace to those individuals. It's an awesome thing. And if you've never been a part of something like that, you need, you, you're, you're, not even, you're not even living, uh, you're just, you just haven't experienced real Christian life yet because there's no better joy. It's just amazing. It, it'll give you a high higher than any high you've ever experienced in your life. Matthew 5.10, blessed are those who have been persecuted for the, for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What is the promise here? The kingdom of heaven. What is the required attitude that leads to the fulfillment of that promise? Being on the receiving end of persecution because of righteousness. 
If you live out loud for Jesus, you will experience opposition, rejection, and persecution. It will come from family, it will come from friends, it will come from those who you'd never think would do such a thing. But guys, we're aliens in this world, we're, we're, we are citizens of heaven, and just us being here makes us a target at times. And this doesn't mean that we should be loud and mouthy and lippy. Anyone can go off at the mouth saying, it's for Jesus, and then being on the receiving end of persecution, go, praise God, I've been persecuted. That's not being persecuted for righteousness, that's being persecuted for being dumb. Come on, amen? That's just being dumb. We are to be wise as serpents, as gentle as doves, and there is a wisdom in regards to knowing when and where to open your mouth and when to shut it. Turn to your neighbor and say, I have to figure out when to shut it. There you go. <laughs> I know Christians who would get more excited about being persecuted than seeing lives changed. Real peacemakers are about the Father's business, not their own agenda. And church, real persecution of Christians is happening. We heard, we've all heard the stories. Mass murderers are happening on a daily basis to those who have chosen Christ. You don't think the Taliban is wiping out Christians? We know, we've heard the stories. I'm getting the reports from missionaries. It's happening wiping them out, just execution style, not, not, even, not even saying anything. Oh, I heard you were in a Christian church during that time. Boom, dead. See, we don't think that that's going on. We don't even wanna, oh, that, 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 yeah, it's happening. Not here, yet. I'm saying you better prepare yourself inside for anything and everything. And always, always, always be that person who leads people to Jesus. These people, these peacemakers, I'm sorry, these uh, persecuted people, they will inherit the kingdom of God. Matthew 5, 11 through 12, it's the last one. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Some people lump these two together as one beatitude, but even though they are similar, I think this is its own promise. What's the promise here? A great reward in heaven. And what's the required attitude that leads to the fulfillment of that promise? Being on the receiving end of persecution, but more specifically, persecution that comes as insults, lies, and all sorts of evil spoken against you because of Jesus himself, because of his righteousness. Because of him, because of who he is, because of his name. When you become a Christian, you take on his name, Christ That gives a whole new meaning to taking the Lord's name in vain, doesn't it? Again, I'm not talking about self-inflicted persecution as a result of foolishness, but as a result of being about the Father's business. There will be lies spoken, accusations made, insults hurled at you, and you have to remember that Jesus told us it was going to happen. Church, I, I believe God is looking for a people that will stand for Christ 
and stand their ground. There, there, there's a brooding in the spirit, I, I think, right now with, within the church, the church, the big church, the church at large. There's a brooding in the spirit, and he's beginning to birth in individuals a boldness and a reckless abandonment to the things in this world. The old men are dreaming dreams. The young men are seeing visions. The Holy Spirit's about to pour out like a latter rain, which explodes the harvest, by the way. He won't come without some, it's not gonna come without some backlash. I mean, but blessed are those who endure it. Just rejoice and be glad because your reward is stacking up in heaven. One of the things that is profound about these beatitudes is that with each one comes more understanding of what salvation truly is and what it isn't. John Piper said this about the Beatitudes, which I thought was really interesting. He said, with each Beatitude, another nail is driven into a coffin. Inside the coffin lies the corpse of a false understanding of salvation. The false understanding says that a person can be saved without being changed. Or that a person can inherit eternal life even if his attitudes and actions are like the attitudes and actions of unbelievers. I want you to understand something, church. This Christianity thing, it's all about balance. It's about balance. You cannot get saved and not be changed. Change is the evidence of your salvation. Well, that's works. No, it's not works. It's fruit. It's fruit. The fruit of salvation, the evidence of it, the litmus test of it, the measure of it is a changed life. Are you in that process of continual change? Because that's, I mean, initially we know you, you get saved, you change, sure. It's big changes right away, and then the rest of your life, those changes keep coming as you keep submitting to God. Slowly but surely, they keep happening. Church, if you're not poor in spirit, then yours isn't the kingdom of heaven then what is yours? Kingdom of hell? If you don't mourn and grieve over those things that grieve Jesus, then, then, then being comforted is not something you should plan on. If you're not meek, we don't have our passions of resentment under control, then, then we're not gonna inherit the, the, the earth. If hungering and thirsting after righteousness is not something we are willing to cultivate in our lives, then experiencing complete satisfaction in him will never be a part of our experience. If we're not merciful, we're not gonna receive mercy. What's the alternative to mercy? No mercy. And again, mercy is not getting what you deserve, so it's getting what you deserve. Well, I don't want what I deserve, how about you? If we aren't pure in heart, seeing God is not in our future. And the alternative to seeing God is, is not seeing him. You're not a peacemaker. The apple hasn't far, has fallen far from the tree instead of close to the tree. You, you won't be called a child of God. And let's take it to one more step. If you're not ever persecuted on any level whatsoever as a result of taking a stand for Christ, is it because you are just lucky? It never says, blessed are the Americans for they shall not endure any persecution. 
These are hard sayings. And again, we don't, we don't go looking for persecution, but I, I have to believe that we are actively pursuing, if we are actively pursuing his call and his will for our lives, if we are trying to make every divine appointment that he has for us, persecution is inevitable, and we will be blessed for that, blessed with the kingdom of heaven and blessed with a great reward in heaven. And I'm five minutes over, and I'm ending right now. Well, can I have two minutes? Just as the Ten Commandments gave the Israelites a rules-to-live-by list to fulfill the Mosaic Covenant, we are given these first public words of Jesus as our rules to live by, so to speak. I mean, they're really, there's a lot of similarities in these. The difference, maybe, is that the Beatitudes are even more impossible than the Ten Commandments because they deal with the heart. They're both impossible. No one can give, can, can, I'm sorry, no one can live up to them except a way has been made. And I know I've referenced this before, but the first or the last word of the Old Testament or the Old Covenant is the word cursed. These first public words of Jesus that are recorded start with the word blessed. It's exact opposites. The Old Covenant and the New Covenant are completely opposite, yet they're similar. How different is that, though? That blessed, from cursed to blessed. Rules that were impossible to follow with no recourse, uh, recourse, to rules that are extremely impossible to follow, but God. God sent his only son, and he, through his perfect sinless life, his substitutionary death on the cross, on behalf of us and his glorious resurrection from the dead, he's paved the way that is solid and sure. We just need to give our hearts to him and cultivate a relationship with him. The difference, really, between the old covenant and the new covenant, between the Ten Commandments and the Beatitudes, if you will, is the idea of one was religion, the other is relationship. God wants a relationship with you. Now I'm ending right now. Bow your heads. Lord, first of all, I, I thank you that this congregation has given me grace for speaking so long this morning. There's just so much in this. I think we could have done a series on each one of the Beatitudes. But Lord, as we contemplate the impossible uh, task that, in, in trying to fulfill all these in our life, God, we know that, that there's just no way. But you made a way when there didn't seem to be a way. God, we ask you into our hearts once again. We ask you to become our Lord and Savior. We give you our hearts, God. We ask you to come in and change us from the inside out. We want to be born again, Lord Jesus. Born again, full of your spirit, changed and set free from sin's control. God, we ask that you would give us a revelation of all that you've done for us through the cross. God, so that we can fall in love with you even deeper, even more. God, we ask that you would change our desires. And Lord, as we go through the rest of this week, I pray this congregation would contemplate your Beatitudes, the attitudes that they should be. 
or display. God, we give you all the glory in your name. Amen. Thanks for being a part of the Indianola First podcast. Join us next week to stay updated on our latest messages.